Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Duncan McCargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, a Professor of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen, and a co-host here on the Southeast Asian Studies channel. It's my great pleasure today to be joined by David Brenner, a lecturer in global insecurities at the University of Sussex and the author of Rebel Politics, a political sociology of armed struggle in Myanmar's borderlands, which was published by Cornell University Press in 2019. It's based on field work from inside the Karen and Kachin rebel communities. David, welcome to the Southeast Asian Studies channel. Thanks very much for having me, Duncan. Thanks for your interest in my book. Yeah, so Myanmar has been very much in the news recently for all the wrong reasons since the military staged a coup on the 1st of February to overturn the results of the November 2020 elections and prevent the NLD from forming a new government. But in mountainous regions above and beyond the lowland areas of the country, numerous ethnic minorities have been actually waging struggles for autonomy and independence that have continued for decades. And the peace process aimed at resolving these rebellions has long been overshadowed by an international media focus, of course, on Aung San Suu Kyi and the national power struggles with the army. Rebel politics is an important corrective, uh, contrasting the more positive engagement of the Karen National Union with the peace process with the uncompromising stance of the Kachin Independence Organization. So, David, can we start with some background? Why focus on particularly the Karen and the Kachin, given that there are all these other ethnic groups engaged in armed rebellion, as you call it, in Myanmar. Yeah, absolutely. There's a variety of different armed struggles, not just ethnic armed struggles. Mm-hmm. are currently seeing this, of course, yes. um, with arms being well taken up across the country. Right. There is, of course, well, a long history to what I think of as ethno-national rebellion in the country. Mm-hmm. 
And like you said, for decades, ever since the country's independence. I do believe that the Kachin and the Karen rebel movements, this is the Kachin Independence Organization, the mm -hmm. Karen National Union, that they do quite well represent a few other well, ethnic armed organizations or that mm -hmm. struggle more generally. Of course, you know, they're also particular, all of them are, and we can maybe also have a conversation about that. But what I found interesting in particular when I started that research underlying this mm -hmm. book was I came into a country where some ceasefires were, well, just being negotiated with the government, with the kind of new semi-democratic government after the liberal reforms were initiated in 2011. And that seemed to be maybe the more commonsensical thing, right? One would think there's a change in government from military rule to maybe more civilian rule. And, um, you know, maybe it's you know a good thing for the peace process and therefore it brings people together, etc. And that happened with the Korean National Union in the east of the country. But at the same time, there were also very long-standing ceasefires breaking down in the north of the country And the most important of that, I believe, was the one with the Kachin Independence Organization. And so this is why I came to really compare both of them, because I thought there's quite some well, puzzle here also to explain and to make sense of. Right. So you see the two as representative as, as it were, two contrasting trends in the issues relating to the peace process and ceasefire. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas actually, and I hope that's what I am convinced the readers mm -hmm. to do, once you start peeling that onion of these groups and their politics, they are actually not all that contrasting. Because many of the things that have led to the breakdown of the ceasefire between the Kachin Independence Organization and the Tatmadaw, the army in Myanmar, actually also have reoccurred in the case of the Karen National Union, sparking quite similar contention within the movement, etc. So many of those things don't actually contrast so much. Right. They also resemble each other. Yes. Okay. So historically, we know, and you talk about this in the book, even the British colonial state never succeeded in pacifying these, quote unquote, frontier areas. So is it useful to think of upland Burma, as some of us still call it, as some kind of anarchic Zomia-like area that's home to these fiercely independent communities, temperamentally averse to central authority? Or is that a rather garbled misrepresentation that some of us have taken away from some recent debates in the literature? I, I still find it somewhat beautiful, this representation, of course. Yes. Surely it's also romanticized. Yes. And take on Somia, etc. Mm -hmm. I think, though, that there is really quite some, well, it's analytically, analytically useful to think about these border areas today that are border areas of different countries like Thailand and Myanmar and Northeast India and Southern China, etc. Yes. To think of them analytically as somewhat contingent territories and areas where you mm -hmm. do have these commonalities and flows that bind them together, often more so maybe than with their representative sort of centers, Beijing or Bangkok or, or Naypyidaw, etc. And I do think in particular, if you want to understand the struggles of, say, for instance, the Kachin Independence Organization, the Kachin, well, community, these struggles can only really be understood in the way that these areas formed in ways that have a lot to do with also Northeast India, with the border mm -hmm. you know, between Myanmar and 
India, for instance, and the struggles that are happening on that side of the border. Surely these contexts are still specific because both of those contexts relate to other state centers, mm -hmm. Delhi versus where maybe Dorian right. gone before. But at the same time, those struggles also appeared at a similar point in time as anti-colonial struggles, similar to those anti-colonial struggles of the Burman uh, community, for instance, or the Hindi majority in India. And so, like, to understand the formation, as well as the ways that then those struggles also were related to each other materially, in terms of, for instance, flows of arms, or mm -hmm. also the ways that people sought education in other places, where, for instance, Kachin officers went to be trained in India, in engineering or in medicine, for instance, through their connections in Northeast India, but also really ideationally that these minority struggles sort of resembled each other and these different communities were talking. And for instance, still, when you come to various places of Asia, there are hubs where those where representatives from different armed groups, Naga armed groups in Northeast India and Kachin groups in Myanmar are actually meeting and actually mm -hmm. having conversations about their common struggles. Yeah. Right. I'm reminded here that actually you were a student of international relations while you were originally working on this project. So you're not purely seeing these, <laughs> these conflicts in domestic terms. Or perhaps I can ask you now about another related question, which is your the title of your book, the first word of the title, mm -hmm. Rebel, your insistence on using this term rebellions. I've been teaching a class for a few years of about comparative insurgencies, where I look at mm -hmm. different conflicts across Southeast Asia, Bhutani, Aceh, uh, Mindanao, and then some of these Myanmar conflicts. Why would you use the word rebel when the, talking about a rebellion could be taken to imply that there's something illegitimate about these struggles and that uh, Napador has legitimate authority over these areas? Is that what you're trying to suggest? Can I just press you a little bit? I, I, um, no, no, it's a really good question. I, I think it's a very valid question that I've been deliberating about quite a yes. bit, including actually with friends in or associated to, for instance, the Kachin Independence Organization, who were in the first place a bit uh, doubtful as well about right. the terminology, and especially, of course, because in Burmese, mm -hmm. and that terminology doesn't work. So right. uh, these concepts never translate. In mm -hmm. Burmese, maybe the state might use terms like Tupon, for instance, or Dang Chantu, but these really, they highlight the violent means rather than yes. the political ends of these struggles, right? right? In English, I think, and I, I discussed that in the preface of the book, I think in English, though, rebellion really does really quite express what I mean, because rebellion is a political struggle. And that yes. is why rebel politics. So I try to foreground the politics of this rather than, you know, some of the theories about insurgency, particularly in political sciences, mm -hmm. for a long time actually depoliticized um, rebellion and armed conflicts with theories that have focused overly on economic maybe interests of yes. elites, etc. Yes. And um, Duncan, I've been hopefully, you know, able to convince my readers that rebellion is something deeply political and not nothing yes. necessarily illegitimate. And actually, in the way that we use to rebel or rebellion in English, I mm -hmm. think, while we are not just using it in an illegitimate way, right? Like to mm -hmm. rebel against injustices is, is a good thing, right? There's all sorts of yes. 
companies these days, even your Rebel Coffee or something like this, which sparked this imagination of something revolutionary. And I think this is something that we have to foreground in the study of rebellion much more. And it's maybe more to do with the kind of general depoliticization of these things that have happened rather than with the term in and of itself. Yes, no, I certainly agree with you about emphasizing the political nature of these struggles and not reducing everything to some sort of economic determinism. I am reminded of my old school headmaster, who I'm still remembering assembly one morning where he said to us, boys, it was an all boys school, you know, I want you all to go forth and be rebels, but not at school. <laughs> <laughs> so, rebellion is a good right. thing so long as it's right. not directed against my own authority so it's, oh, it's that's a great anecdote I hope, you, in, I hope you bring this in your course as well uh, <laughs> I, I, yes it is a it is a it's a very interesting yeah illustration I mean, of how two-edged the idea of, of rebellion is because exactly. we, we, we glamorize and we admire rebellion but we also don't want to be at the receiving end of it yeah, I mean, Duncan, look, for instance, I think the other word would be insurgency, right? Yes. And for instance, Martin Smith wrote about insurgency and others before me. That I used that term as well in my previous writings to the book. And I still think it's actually also an apt term, even though I decided against that, because it might actually then translate in particular in ways that foreground the violent means or the technical way yeah, of organizing mm -hmm. insurgency, etc., but there actually, rebellion and insurgency, when we look to post-colonial studies, um, is something that is often debated and often debated particularly in uh, the anti-colonial struggles uh, of places. For instance, when you look to the subaltern studies literature mm -hmm. and the way that when uh, post-colonial scholars are discussing insurgency, are discussing rebellion, they don't actually mean something illegitimate at all. They mean a particular way of struggle that involves arms rather than maybe more generally revolution because generally revolution could be people going to the streets and protesting like all sorts of things that we've of course seen in Myanmar over and over again of course including this year but then rebellion or insurgency is of course something that also relates to the um, armed um, struggle component of that and here again often this is seen as something inherently illegitimate but that is maybe more to do with our ways, our, could call it Westphalian common sense, mm. that we view the state as inherently legitimate. And whatever it does, clearly see that the state or the military state in Myanmar is definitely the most violent actor in the whole country and has lost all legitimacy by now, I think, amongst very many people, at least in the country. But even then, it seems that armed struggle is always something more illegitimate. And so in some ways, I also try to counteract some of those commonsensical notions here. That makes good sense. Yeah, I and mean, one of the things I obviously find most interesting about your book is the ethnographic fieldwork that you did, a method that I'm very attached to myself. And there are very few scholars who really immerse themselves in ongoing violent conflicts in this way. So how did you manage to insinuate yourself into these movements? Uh, it's been a long process, and I think from some of your work, especially in Southern Thailand, you will know um, that mm -hmm. you can't just rock up there and say, hey, guys, I want to talk with um, right. your leaders, etc. I think there's two things to be said about this. The first thing that is, I think, quite important, and I'm trying to make this conceptually clear in the book as well, is that uh, rebel movements, Kachin, Karen, as well as other 
movements that are commonly known as ethnic armed organizations in Myanmar, yes. that they really are more than just the actual armed organizations where you have the gun-totting soldiers of our imaginations, that these movements really reverberate in society in different networks where you have student associations, women associations, we have education systems, often quite elaborate, etc. I mean, we have to remember that these are places where the state has never ruled, where many mm -hmm. of those movements have become states within the state, yes. and even in places where they are maybe not that much state in terms of its their institutions like public service provision and so on. Go, for instance, to the Naga struggles on the India border. Um, on the Myanmar side, I mean, they're much weaker in that sense, but still there is a large social movement around. them. So the first thing I want to say is that, yes, I've been very much also with different rebel units, like armed rebel units of the Karen and the Kachin in different places. But also, I think one thing to appreciate is that the, the social movement and of, of theirs is larger than that. And some of those parts, of course, are easier accessible than others. And I think this is where I started. I, for instance, I helped the teaching of the Karen Education and Culture Department, which is a ministry department of the KNU, with a large-scale survey at some point about their schooling system. They have more than 100,000 students in their schools. And that, of course, brought me into the KNU and then brought me to other parts of the KNU, etc., mm -hmm. to leadership levels, different brigades, etc. That was really through entering, not like, oh, I want to speak to your generals, so I want to be with your soldiers, but entering that social space of rebellion through a space that, of course, also came more natural for me as a social scientist, yes. doing a survey in the education department, etc. So that was important. And then snowballing from there, also diaspora movements and connections of people. It's a social space that goes beyond armed group. That is what I'm trying to say. And I think these things were important. But also, and that was, I think, something that, I've, that was always very important to me and that I've really made sure to approach people with is I didn't just want to go there and just do my interviews and have that information and that's it. But I wanted to see how I could also contribute to the communities that I'm with. Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, doing these things like surveys or in case of the Kachin, for instance, I was teaching several seminars for civil society organizations as well as um, uh, KIO offices on well, international relations, the United Nations, all of those mm -hmm. kind of things, because it was a time when the United Nations, INGOs, etc., were all coming to Burma right, and engaging all these different EIOs about you're not supposed to lay landmines or you're supposed mm -hmm to negotiate in the peace process and we're coming here with all of our policies like mm -hmm. demobilization or security sector reform that we have developed in places on the other side of the world and of course for many of the people that were then uh, the spokespeople or like negotiating on the side of EAOs with not just the government, but all the international organizations and diplomats that were coming at the time to Myanmar. Some of the sorts of training that you would also maybe give to postgraduate students in international relations also was actually also maybe quite useful, at least you know, I hope it was. And that is things that I try to to do rather than to just go and um, extract information as such. And that, of course, was great because it then... Well, it just made me connect with people beyond in mm -hmm. interviews. So the kind of ethnographic right. part actually came rather natural, where yes, yes. you were then invited to people's weddings or birthdays, picnics, traveled with people, you stayed in people's houses. It's, and all of which really, I think, you know, I learned so much more from than interviews with, I don't know, a general or a spokesperson, etc. So you found ways of 
connecting yourself and linking into those communities that played on your assets as a, an academic researcher. Well, but yeah, I mean, we're social scientists, right? I mean, Absolutely. Least, I'm not yeah. the most useful person there in terms of I'm not an engineer, I'm not a medic, etc. Um, there's, of course, something I, I think, and I can, I can recommend anybody who's doing research at this take our role in education and, you know, and in, in research and so on seriously sometimes, because this obviously can be quite relevant. Right? Yeah. Okay. So the Quran are arguably the best known of these groups. And we know that they had this privileged status during the colonial period, but they've been on the back foot pretty much since independence. What new insights did you uncover about the ongoing Karen rebellion? And, and most importantly, why did the Karen do this vault fast and do for peace from 2012? Mm. So for the Karen, actually, that they negotiated a ceasefire or a deal and then engaged in the peace process, that decision wasn't maybe the most puzzling to explain because there was this wider change, right? But then once you actually started listening to people in the movement itself, the interesting thing was a lot of the people in the movement actually were quite cautious and didn't even agree often with the way things were done at that time, mm -hmm. right? With the ceasefire itself often, or then at least with the conduct of the ceasefire. And so what opened up there was actually really interesting. Well, again, one could easily maybe explain the case of the current ceasefire by saying, oh yeah, that was basically just to do with their external environment, which though is something then doesn't work in the case of the Kachin or other groups whose ceasefires broke down in the same external environment, where that led me to listening quite closely to the internal politics of the mm -hmm. And in the case of the Karen, it emerged then quite quickly that a large part of the movement actually opposed the ceasefire, or at least mm -hmm. how that ceasefire was done and how the negotiations were being forwarded, etc. And um, even on the leadership level, the movement was rather divided. And so I tell that story in my book, where then uh, actually leaders who agreed to the ceasefire and championed the peace process all of a sudden, even though the Karen before, Karen National Union, so this, when I say Karen, obviously it's a short and mm -hmm. for the Karen National Union, obviously the Karen community is a much larger community who lives in different parts of the country. Not everyone is support the Karen rebellion, of course. But here also where I'm basically explaining why some parts of the movement were much more inclined in negotiating and conciliating with the government than others. And part of the explanation is to do with the structural circumstances of uh, the Karen National Union, which are different to... Brigade to brigade. The Korean National Union is a rather, geographically speaking, it spans across a rather wide territory from across along the Thai border. And some brigades there have, through counterinsurgency and as well as economic dynamics, it have um, lost ground um, for a long time, since the 1990s actually, more so than others. And so there's internal differences and also there have been some power struggles that can help us explain in the end why there's been such a divided view in the move. And of course, right. there's been all sorts of attempts to bridge these divides and they're ongoing. These are really quite complex internal politics that is my argument in the end actually drive the way that the movement has been negotiating or, for instance, now maybe went back into much more of an armed struggle mode and that have driven these external trajectories of the movement at least to the same extent as their changing external environment itself. 
And it seems like you make a kind of a similar argument about the Kachin, that it's really leadership struggles and internal factionalism that accounts for a great deal of this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think in both of the movements, I say, well, it's on the one hand about these different factions and leadership and their struggles with each other. And on the other hand, what is also really important in both is their vertical relations to their mm-hmm. what I call the grassroots in the book. And I haven't found a better term maybe, but what I mean really with that is um, the rank and file of these movements. But again, not just the gun-totting soldiers, you know, uh, there is no gun-totting soldiers. Sorry, it's just like our imagination is this, right? The gun-wielding yes. soldiers or whatever. But, you know, not just them and not just the administrators and teachers, etc., of the movement, but also local community because you can't divide those out. And I think so both is important, the leadership struggle, as well as their relations to their grassroots. And this is something that played out in both, in both cases. And in the case of the Kachin, yes, absolutely, that has played out as well, because the Kachin Independence Organization, they signed a ceasefire with the military in 1994. And that broke down just at the time when the Karen National Union signed their ceasefire, just a bit before, half a year before. Also at this time of, you know, major change in Myanmar and semi-democratization, etc. And I tell that story that I think presents best what I heard and observed and witnessed when I was with the Kachin. And that was really that throughout that 17-year-long ceasefire, the movement has tried to do many things, including building roads, building better livelihoods for people in terms of economic development. It's really quite interesting and also maybe relates a bit back to a question before about the highlanders who romanticized these highlanders as state built. Actually, I mean, their building states, they're not against development as such. But the way that the military, what I call co-opted individual leaders of these movements in these ceasefires into you know, deals that, of course, included business. In the Myanmar case, it's called ceasefire capitalism, which is a term that emerged from Kevin Wood's writings in the first place. And there, I think, in the case of the Kachin, that was quite obvious how that actually also sparked a lot of discontent in the movement and actually really had a drag on the legitimacy of some of those leaders, right? And that gave rise in the Kachin example to this group of young officers of the Kachin Independence Army that sought to re-embed the movement that has lost much of the support in these times of ceasefire when local communities were not displaced by war anymore, but many, especially rural communities, continued to be displaced by the extractive industries, for instance, that came in with the ceasefire, the jade mining, the timber logging, etc., that displaced people also, and they had quite some violent effects on people's livelihoods. What I'm trying to say there is that this, of course, discontent on the basis of this new faction within the Kachin Independence Army of young officers, they mobilized against their own leadership, actually, and have stirred the movement back into a much more revolutionary direction um, against that kind of co-opted uh, ceasefire politics that the movement has, you know, over these quite many years, sort of gotten itself in before, maybe. And this also, at least in my argument here, contributed to the breakdown of the ceasefire. And there, the parallel to the Korean National Union is that many of those dynamics, what I just said in terms of the losing of legitimacy amongst local communities who can't be protected in a ceasefire against all the extractive industries who come in, etc. And much of that actually really also mirrors what has happened in the Karen National Union and their territories since 2012. That's very clear. So if we just step back from Myanmar, 
and think comparatively, and I've mentioned to you my interest in trying to understand comparatively what's happening in these, what I'm, what I'm still calling insurgencies, I have to confess. Is there anything you can take away that people who might be interested in rebellions, insurgencies in other parts of the world and, and aren't especially excited about your particular mm. cases? Is there something from your book that other people could take home and keep and, and then apply somewhere else? Oh, I hope so. I mean, obviously, I hope it speaks to people interested in Burma, but I also hope really it speaks to people uh, or to people interested in movements, yeah. armed movements, insurgency, rebellion, however you want to call them, Duncan, beyond that. I also teach a course, which I call the politics of armed groups, basically. Mm -hmm. And it's a comparative course, yes. like yours in, in many ways, I, I, I would think. And um, some things that I try to stress in the course and that I do think go back to my book is the maybe first of all the sociological perspective that can help us to maybe understand some of the politics surrounding armed struggle better than maybe a more traditional political science perspective and so now i myself i've been trained as a political scientist as a geographer mm -hmm. in international relations and so on and sociology as well but i really found that this kind of relational perspective that I propose, which is a perspective that mm -hmm. thinks about not just the rational choices of people, but mm -hmm. the way that they are part of wider structures, I think really quite important. And of course, if you break this down, I think what it means from that book, for instance, is that the way that people, for instance, might mobilize, join different rebel movements, etc., this is not always this kind of rational decision that some other theories might want us to have, but there is this social structures within which people live. In these areas, Martin Smith wrote this at some point, mm -hmm. insurgency has become a way of life. Yes. Like over decades, over generations, right? Like a student doesn't choose whether they go to a rebel-controlled school or a state-controlled school as such. Or even when you start teaching in one of those schools, maybe that was never your direct choice as people might have the ability to make choices in other places. At the same time, of course, people do make choices. This is not just a structurally deterministic argument. And I think what I'm trying to foreground here also then is the agency of not just leaders, but also grassroots of these movements. And that power doesn't only flow from the top down of these movements to, to the bottom, but that power actually is something reciprocal in these movements, right? right. That their decisions, their trajectories are always negotiated in this larger social process and that these are not just unitary, rational decision-making actors. And really, I mean, you will know this, of course, from teaching in the political sciences as well on these things. Many of our understandings also of peace, for instance, how peace negotiations work, uh, they're still based in somewhat an idea that you have billiard ball style unitary actors mm -hmm. and they negotiate yes. over their rational interests and then you have spoilers, etc. involved. And I hope that my book can speak to and complicate some of that. And I think if it does some of those things, then I'd be very happy. So more generally, maybe for people who are in this literature on conflict and security, I think the book does pretty speak to the literature on fragmentation, internal politics of our movement, the literature on rebel governance in particular, the importance to think through their governance and state building arrangements, and then the political economy literature also, and then hopefully propose this sociological approach that engages with a lot of economic realities, etc., but maybe just so from a different perspective of what human beings are in the end. No, that all sounds most convincing and, of course, has many parallels with, with my own work on the Southern Thai insurgency or whatever exactly we should be calling it. Very similar sorts of arguments that I'm, I've made myself there. 
Duncan, but like absolutely, right? Like empirically speaking for Southeast Asia, like your work has also shown that approach of two-state building mm-hmm. from the Thai side is actually not that dissimilar. I mean, it's maybe less directly violent than in Burma, but mm-hmm. there's also this ethnocratic component, of course. Oh, yes. To it. And this Absolutely. is something I think we see across Southeast Asia for, you know, when we don't just speak about concepts and theories of like arms struggle more generally, I think mm-hmm. across Southeast Asia, we see some of that dynamic and as well in maybe South Asia, many of those conflicts are about these ethnocratic orders. Many of the rebellions are then about ethno-nationalists. I think the role of for instance, education and also counter-education for that reason then, right? In southern Thailand, as well as in different parts of Myanmar or in the Philippines and so on. I think these things are all really important across that region then, right? Absolutely. So one last question for you. Where does the coup that I've already mentioned on the 1st of February 2021 Mm. leave these processes, leave these rebellions and leave the future of Myanmar from the point of view of the sort of research that you've been doing? So we've seen after the coup that different ethnic armed organizations have taken different stances towards those unfolding, changing politics. And actually both the groups that I looked at, the Kachin and the Karen rebellions, have kind of positioned themselves rather closely to this national unity government, the Mm -hmm. kind of pro-democracy resistance across Myanmar against the coup. And that's quite interesting to maybe look at the way that they've done so, even though they are rather cautious, because especially for the Karen, they've done that before in the 1990s. There was an exile government as well at the time. They were dependent on the liberated areas of the Mm -hmm. Karen and their support. And that nevertheless, many of the EAOs, including parts of the KNU, have felt very much let down after the NLD then came to power. And so in a way, both of those movements have very much supported the NUG. Also, you know, in terms of sheltering people, training what is called the People's Defense Forces. So an armed struggle that often associated with the pro-democratic movement rather than the ethnic armed organizations. But they've done so more cautiously maybe than one would normally or than what one would sometimes hear, right? And Mm -hmm. this is something I think that is important to think about for why also some other EAOs, ethnic armed organizations, have actually been much more cautious in general and hatched their bets about this or maybe even reaffirmed their ceasefires with the military. And I think, you know, so to sort of move forward and if the idea is to create more unity, solidarity across those very different often struggles in Myanmar, then some of those concerns that are experienced historically by ethnic minorities and those movements have to be, of course, addressed. And the other thing maybe just quickly that I think is important now, of course, there is, well, armed struggle has swept across Myanmar. So we see different units with like makeshift weaponry of very bravely fighting against Tatnador soldiers with all their experience of counterinsurgency and war waging against its own people and atrocities and what have you. And there I think it's also quite important to think about the differences of these different units and armed struggles maybe. And one thing that strikes me quite important is that in some of the ethnic minority community area in the border areas where we had ethnic armed organizations before that were often seen as more legitimate or representative by their own constituents, but maybe have 
been less so in recent years, just have been defeated by counterinsurgents. There we've seen quite a lot armed resistance under that umbrella name of the People's Defense Forces, for instance, in Chin State or in Kareni State. But I would think that young people, uh, well, also veterans, but mostly young people who are struggling and fighting in these ethnic minority areas really also have always on top of the grievances against the coup that young people have grievances against Mandalay and Yangon as well. Like on top of that, of course, they've only ever really experienced militarization, war, militarized insecurities in their lives. And these struggles are, even though they often come under the umbrella name of PDF because they're newly emerging struggles, or it seems then to be related to just the now and the present, you know, they have their own histories, right, Duncan? And I think it's an incredibly fragmented context. And if there's anything to take away from rebel politics for that as a takeaway point is like to really just look closely at those different individual struggles and the way that they relate to also particular communities rather than just seeing it under this national umbrella of a national revolution, which of course is also the context, um, but not only that can't explain everything in that sense. Indeed, yes. I mean, perhaps if I could sum it up in my own way, we're in a rather ironic situation because many of these rebel organizations have been rebelling against effectively a, a lowland Burmese state. And now we find many of the forces previously associated with the lowland Burmese state allied with them, with the common enemy of the military. But it's still mm. not entirely clear that there's a commonality of shared interest between the lowlanders who don't like the military and the uplanders who are still fighting for their own identity and, and autonomy and control. Of course, right, yeah. Yeah. So, David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on the New Books Network. I hope we've helped boost interest in your book in the ongoing struggles of Myanmar's ethnic minorities for autonomy, independence and the like, and indeed in your approach of using ethnography to study rebel movements. Thanks so much again for having me, Duncan, and for yeah, the interest in my book. Thanks for listening in. I'm Duncan McCargo. I've been in conversation with David Brenner, who's a lecturer in global insecurities at the University of Sussex and the author of Rebel Politics, a political sociology of armed struggle in Myanmar's borderlands. You've been listening to the New Books Network Southeast Asian Studies Chat. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.